that's how they learn, right? They have to make mistakes in order to learn from them. They have to cross boundaries in order to be told where those boundaries are. And that's just, that's normal. I don't think there's any such thing as like a perfectly behaved kid. And that's, that's okay. That's part of being a kid. What's up, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and welcome to episode 56 of Be More Well. This week, I'll be catching up with science journalist Melinda Wenner Moyer. Now, before we jump in, for those of you that may be listening for the first time, just thank you. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for sharing some of your day with me. I hope you like what you hear. If you've been listening to Be More Well for a while, thank you for coming back for more. It is so appreciated. You ever look at an asshole adult and think, how did they get that way? You know, like what was it in their childhood that pushed them to a point where they would become such a piece of garbage as an adult? I got a few names running through my head right now. Now, I know for some, uh, it's the pursuit of fame, notoriety, and money. Some people will just say and do anything for a little bit of attention. I'm sure you could think of a few people that fall under that category. But for others, a lot of it stems from the way they were brought up. And look, parents don't deserve all the blame. Being a parent is the hardest job on the planet, and no one is perfect. I truly don't believe that any parent looks at their kids with a plan to mess them up for life. I know every time I look at my daughter, I just get this overwhelming feeling of wanting to do anything that I can for her to ensure that she'll have a successful life. Yet, even with these good intentions, assholes still exist. Science journalist Melinda Wenner-Moyer is here to help. Her first book just came out. It's called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. I've read a lot of articles from Melinda over the years. Her work pops up all over the place, from the Washington Post and New York Times to O, the Oprah magazine. And she's also a contributing editor for Scientific American. Oh, and her list of awards rivals that of, like, Taylor Swift. I say all that to show that she knows her stuff. The book looks at a lot of factors in the child-rearing process, like how to raise kids who aren't selfish, racist, and sexist. Also, in this conversation, we dive into topics like self-esteem and bullying and how being a mentor to your kid is probably more effective than ruling with an iron fist. Before we dive into the conversation, please be sure to subscribe to Be More Well on whatever platform you're listening on right now. That way you'll be notified of all future episodes. I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and review as well. That helps new people to be introduced to Be More Well. And feel free to find us on Instagram. We are at Be More Well Podcast. I love to hear from you guys, so feel free to reach out there. Hi, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm just making sure. Okay. Yes. I have my microphone set up and all these things are working. I hope <laughs> there's always a million things to like figure everything out. Right. Yeah. 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 I always joke. No one ever right. calls me or texts me throughout the day until the second I sign on for an interview. And then it's like phone calls and I'm cutting out my stream and I'm like, come on. <laughs> That's really funny because literally at 259, my landline rang and it was actually really good because it reminded me to unplug it or, you know, so it won't ring um, while we're talking. But of course, like 259, I just right. didn't answer it. I'm like, exactly. Go away. Yeah. That's how it works in this world, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we could set this up kind of off the promo tour. Not that I have an issue with book promo tours at all because I think it's a great opportunity to speak with people. Uh, but sometimes I just feel like there's such a promo tour fatigue. And, you know, mm -hmm. if, especially if you end up talking to someone towards the end of the four or five hour block that they're there, I was talking to one yeah. woman who shall remain nameless and I'm sure she's an amazing person, but I was so looking forward to the interview. And then I look over in the video screen and she's like responding to text messages. Cause she's just been like, <laughs> I, I'm sure she's just hired of it. You know, it's the same question yeah. over and over again. So thank you for being so accommodating and uh, scheduling this interview. Of course. Yeah, no, actually it's great for me too. That day was very long. <laughs> I can only imagine. And, uh, I'd, I'd, 
I'd rather spread it out. Yeah, it's, it's easier. So sorry about the mess behind me, by the way. It was funny. I was just talking to my wife and she was like, people can't see like the basement when you do these, right? <laughs> of course, I tell her no. Um, <laughs> I feel like it was no, endearing at the worry. start because at, at the start, everyone shifted to home and everybody's like, oh, it's okay. You're in a messy room. But now it's been a year and a half and I have no excuse. So. Uh, it's I totally understand. I, I was like, I was doing some radio, a TV stuff too. And I was just dumping things in the corner, like behind that thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was like this pile of crap because yeah. Uh, you do what you got to do. Um, yeah. I, I can't keep my room clean. I love the title of your book. I love the subject. I've been reading through it. I have not finished the entire thing yet. Cause there's a lot in here, which is awesome. Um, but my brain takes a little bit of time to process, uh, but the, the title itself is what really grabbed me. And I'm sure you've heard that from other people because the title of the book is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And I'm pretty confident my kid is going to be an asshole anyway, just because my wife and I are assholes. So I just feel like it's going to happen. <laughs> well, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you like the title. Uh, yeah, it's uh, but uh, so like really what the title is supposed to mean is how to raise kids who don't grow up to be assholes. And so I feel like kids are always going to be assholes. I don't know. Can I, and I can say that word yes, or please. are we not recording please, it? Come on. I, I actually <laughs> cherish these moments when we can have a candid conversation and use words like this. Cause I think it's great. Good. Yes. No, my kids are often. Yeah. Assholes. So, um, I think that, I think that, you know, that's, that's how they learn, right? They have to make mistakes in order to learn from them. They have to cross boundaries in order to be told where those boundaries are. And that's just, that's normal. I don't think there's any such thing as like a perfectly behaved kid. And that's, that's okay. That's part of being a kid. Yeah. They kind of have to be assholes as they're growing up because they need to learn. They have to test boundaries. They have to push your buttons. They've got to figure out what's right, what's wrong. So maybe I guess the way to start is to get what your definition of the term asshole is in this context. Again, I was really thinking of more the adult world, thinking, sure. how do I raise my kid not to become an adult asshole? And yeah, it was really interesting because I did have to kind of sit down and think about, okay, what are the characteristics of an asshole? <laughs> or at least to me, what are the important things that I, as a parent, don't, you know, don't want my kid to become that, that are part of being an asshole? So um, what the, like the first big one that came to me was... Um, uh, like selfishness. So, so I looked, I wanted to know, you know, what does the research say on raising kids who aren't selfish, who are like generous and helpful. And there was a lot of research in there. And then there was, um, sexism, racism were big ones. You know, how do I talk to my, how do I raise my kids to not be racist and sexist? And, you know, what does the research say on that? Um, I also was really, uh, you know, I think people would argue as to whether this is, this is assholery or not, but I thought about, um, like, laziness. And, um, I, I thought of like ambition as something that, you know, to me, like, or at least like resilience in some way, those sure. are important qualities. Um, and I don't know whether they're parts of assholery, but they seemed important to include. Um, and, uh, and like, and not becoming a, a bully is another one. Sure. So what do we know about bullying? So it's like, a, you know, as you can see, I pulled in stuff from like a lot of different areas because those were where the research was that, but that seemed really relevant to this issue of like, not raising an asshole. I want to touch on just about everything that you just mentioned, um, but I want to take a step back because at the very beginning of your book, uh, in the introduction, you talk about how when surveyed, most parents say that kindness is the quality they want their kids to have. But at the same time, when they're surveyed about what kids are like these days, most parents say kids are not kind. So why do we suck at raising our children? Those statistics were really interesting to me. Um, so when I looked into, you know, what is it that shapes a child's character? What makes them behave the way that they behave? What was really interesting was there's a whole area of research um, called social learning theory that suggests that 
kids learn um, from the people that they see, especially people in power, and they try to emulate them. And so when I was thinking about like what inspired me to write this book, part of it was that I knew there were, <laughs> I knew there were people in positions of political power who I thought were not behaving very well. You don't and say. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and this was also when I came up with the book idea, this was when Me Too was exploding. There were all these allegations of, you know, all these people that we looked up to who then we realized were just terrible. And kids were hearing about this and kids were seeing people behaving badly. Um, and, and so I think part of it is that kids are, learning from the examples they're seeing. Um, and, and that is why they're not all <laughs> acting very well. I mean, I, I looked at the, the statistics on bullying and on um, hate crimes, and it, it's pretty clear that around 2016, 2017, rates of bullying um, sure. were going up and hate crimes in adults were definitely going up. Um, and, and there were also teachers who were reporting that kids were saying things in schools like build a wall and like uh, other things that, um, that people, they had heard some people saying that suggests that, yeah, uh, some of this bad behavior is just coming from what, what kids are seeing around them and maybe what their parents are repeating as well racism is a big piece of this too. And not that I want to like totally shift gears here, but there's something in here that I had to educate myself on it. And you mentioned it in the book that I thought was kind of interesting is that um, when we teach our kids to be, if we choose to teach our kids to be colorblind, that doesn't solve the aspect of racism because they're, they do still see a difference. And I remember someone teaching me that at the beginning of the whole anti-racism uh, movement that kind of came up in the last year or so, uh, because I would always think, well, you know, the, the phrase, I don't see color that makes sense logically to be anti-racist, but realistically it's not because you're not acknowledging the fact that other people are different and other people have different experiences. And, you know, you have to, you have to not treat them differently, but you have to understand where they're coming from. Um, so it, it's interesting to see in your book, how you talk about that, because I would think that raising a kid to be colorblind would be a good thing. Again, logic says that's a good thing, but you do have to kind of address the fact that there are people from different places with different colors and, and you need to kind of talk to them about how that's, that's okay. And that's great. Yeah. That research is really, really interesting because um, yes, first of all, the research does show that most white parents do kind of espouse this colorblind philosophy. They do think like, if I don't talk about race with my kids and maybe my kids won't see it, they won't make a big deal out of it. Um, but what the research shows is that kids do see skin color. In fact, babies as young as three months see skin color and they um, they prefer even at three months looking at pictures of adults who share the same skin color as their caregivers. So they're definitely seeing it. And then the problem is, um, kids are like little detectives. They're always looking around the world trying to figure out what matters, you know, what social categories matter? Um, why does the world look the way it does? And they notice that there are these racial hierarchies that exist in our society because they're very salient. I mean, we can see that only one president has not been white and we and kids see that, you know, the kids at school with the biggest houses often are white. Sure. Um, they, they see this and if parents or teachers aren't explaining to them why this hierarchy exists, if they're not explaining that, okay, racism has, persisted for a very long time um, and it is responsible for this hierarchy, uh, then then kids will kind of make the simplest conclusion, which is, oh, maybe white people are just better and smarter. And so it's, it's when we don't talk about race that actually they make the more racist conclusions, which is really counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of us. But the, the research really does show this. And it shows too that when parents 
do talk about race with their kids, those kids are, uh, when they're tested for racial prejudice, those kids score, you know, better, they're less racist than, than parents who kind of espouse this more colorblind philosophy and don't talk about race. I uh, I don't know if it's an official term, but I like to call it ostrich parenting, where you just kind of stick your head in the sand and pretend like everything is fine and there's nothing going on around you. Uh, <laughs> I have a seven-month-old or a seven-and-a-half-month-old right now. Um, it's my first child and likely my only child, and uh, very excited about it. But, you know, it is... It is funny to see how she looks at things differently. And she's seven months, so she's not saying anything. She's not embarrassing the family. But it is interesting to see how she sees things and reacts differently to different things that are... Even with dogs, we have two huskies. So she's very used to being around very large dogs. But sometimes she sees a dog like maybe a pit bull or something, and I can tell she's not as excited to see that dog. And that dog didn't do anything to her. But she's reacting to the way that animal looks. And maybe to her, it looks a little bit scary. And so it, it is fascinating what kids can pick up. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is this kind of natural tendency in all of us to be scared of the things that we don't understand or scared of, you know, differences that we've never seen before. So there is also, yeah, that kind of instinct in some ways that we have to push against. Now you, your definition of asshole is kind of more, uh, we're trying to keep kids from becoming asshole adults. Um, selfishness is your first chapter. And the, the phrase selfishness is often viewed as a very negative term. I do feel like in recent years, though, at least in the older child and adult world, it's changed a little bit because people are understanding that selfishness could mean making sure that you're okay and taking care of yourself uh, in a situation where, you know, instead of trying to please everyone, you're really just saying, okay, well, this doesn't work for me. I have to make sure that I'm happy. So selfishness, the term itself has kind of shifted a, a little bit in the older adult world, but how do you work with it with children? Yeah, no, that's such a good point. I mean, even just with what's happening now, look, Simone Biles saying, sure. I, <laughs> I, I can't do this. This is not good for me. I think, I think that those, that's a really positive thing that we do need to be taking care of ourselves and doing what, what we need to be doing um, to stay healthy and mentally healthy. Um, so when I write about selfishness, I, I really dug more into what the research says about the development of generosity and the development of helpfulness, because to me, those were the two qualities that I thought, you know, they're not exactly the opposite of selfishness, but those are good things that I think most sure. parents want their kids to develop. And that research was really interesting because it, it all kind of pointed to one key thing, which was talking to your kids about feelings, your feelings, their feelings, everybody's feelings is a really, really important foundation for the development of generosity and helpfulness. And that kind of seems counterintuitive. Like why did talking about feelings, why would that make a difference? And I think the idea is that um, when we talk to kids about feelings, um, they can better learn how to recognize other people's feelings. And if you think about what it takes to be generous or to be helpful, you have to be able to look at somebody else and kind of see how they're feeling and what they might need. Um, you have to really be able to put yourself in another person's shoes. And that's, that's a skill known as theory of mind. And it develops in kids um, in the school age years, but really like parents can have a, a big role in how quickly it develops and how strongly it develops. And when we talk about feelings, um, we're helping that develop and we're really giving kids the, the groundwork they need in order to be able to be generous and be able to be helpful. And there's some really fascinating research that illustrates this um, this link between the two things, which I could, uh, I, there's one study that just like kind of blew me away. Um, 
which was, okay, researchers invited moms and I think like three and four-year-olds into a lab. And they, they first had the moms read uh, books to their kids. And the researchers recorded how frequently the moms talked about feelings with their kids when they were reading the books. So like if the mom paused the reading to say, how does, how do you think this character feels? Or how do you think this, you know, character feels? Um, and they kind of, they assumed that the, the moms who talked about feelings a lot when reading the books did, did that kind of thing a lot at home. And then later on, they took the kids one by one into another room with a researcher and the researcher would feign needing help. So she would, she would say, oh, I'm so cold. I wish I had that blanket right over there. Or she would drop her pencil and say, oh, I can't reach that pencil. Oh, I wish I could reach that pencil. And they would watch what the kids would do. And they found the kids whose moms talked about feelings a lot in the first part of the experiment were much more likely to help the researcher in the second part of the experiment. So there really was this very direct link between talking about feelings and the kids like propensity to be generous, which is so interesting. And that's just one study. There's mm -hmm. dozens that support this link. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of nice. It's like a simple thing we can be doing that ultimately leads to a really good thing. <laughs> it reminds me of when I was younger, there was a family that, you know, I guess you would call them like the hippie family. And uh, the parents would always, whenever you saw them with their kids, they'd always like, how does that make you feel, Timmy? And we'd all like make fun of them. Because like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. these people, you know. But in retrospect, they were way ahead of the game. And they were on top of this before, before we knew that we really should be doing this, you know. That is kind of annoying, I guess, in some ways, or it just can come off the wrong way. But, but then I also see things... Like I do see kind of the opposite of this all the time now, even I was at um, water park with my family a few weeks ago. And I remember there was this little boy who was scared to go on a ride and his dad was really just like shaming him for his mm. fear and saying like, don't be such a baby. This is so stupid. Why are you scared? This is no big deal. And those are unfortunately what the research suggests that often does come from dads. And it often is two sons, like we don't like boys to feel fear right, or to right. feel sadness. And so those are kind of the, the things that like we, we still really, really need to work on. Like there's, there's a lot of, a lot of families I think who, yeah, they think like boys aren't supposed to be afraid ever, or they're not allowed to show it at least. And they're not allowed to show that they're sad. And I mean, that's in our culture. That's like a big aspect of what we consider like masculine behavior, but it really, ultimately is harmful because kids, those kids who are shamed for their feelings, they don't have a, as much of a chance to learn how to handle their feelings. Um, and then, you know, they, ultimately there's like all sorts of kind of bad outcomes that come from sure. not being able to manage feelings. And yeah, so got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you how old you are? Sure, I'm 42. 42. Okay, so we're, we're the, I, I just turned 40. So we're like the same age. So you're familiar with the artist Lisa Loeb? Yes. Okay. I, and the only reason I asked is because I, I mentioned it to somebody else uh, that was much younger than I am. They were like, who are you talking about? But uh, she actually <laughs> writes kids music now. And I'm not sure if you knew that, but she oh, has kids albums. I did not. And she does a song with uh, the uh, actor Craig Robinson, uh, who was in The Office and uh, Hot Tub Time Machine. But they have a song called Feel What You Feel. And as a music fan, you may listen to it and go, this song is terrible. But the message, I never really thought about it. My wife is a teacher and the message is so important because the whole song is about telling kids that it's okay to feel sad, happy, hurt, whatever your feeling might be. And when she explained it to me, my wife explained that idea to me. I was like, wow, I never, 
I never really thought about it. I was listening to it as just someone that was listening to music and going, man, this song is just not entertaining to me. But there is such a powerful message about feelings and how important they are. And uh, so, it, again, it, it's just kind of nice to see that people are recognizing that and trying to put it out there in the world uh, for people to grab mm -hmm. onto. Yeah, that's neat. I will have to check out her music. Uh, you mentioned dads, and this is a hot button topic for me right now because I understand the stereotype of dads versus moms in the world. Uh, there's like no research when it comes to dads. It's all research on moms. And, and maybe because I am a dad now, I get hurt by this uh, because I do feel like they're ignoring the dads that are making an active effort to really do the right thing for their kids and be there for their family and share responsibilities. Why is it, why, why haven't we gotten to the point where we are seeing more research on that? Cause I feel like the shift has happened where more dads are much more involved now. Yeah. It is really frustrating because time and time again, I would look up these studies and it would be almost all moms or, or only moms. They didn't even invite dads like the, the study I was describing a few minutes ago. And, um, I, I do think it is getting better. A lot of the research um, on, you know, how parenting affects kids, like it, it's, you know, a lot of it happened in the nineties. A lot of it happened, you know, 10, 20 years ago. I mean, there, but there's definitely research now too. And I have noticed that the newer research um, does, it does invite fathers more. It does include fathers more. Um, but it's really too bad because we still, it's still like when you look at the whole body of research on parenting, it's still very, very skewed to moms because for, for decades, it only included moms. Yeah. Um, so we have like a long, long way to go. There is some research that has been done on, you know, what, what is sort of the, what are the unique things that dads contribute to the, you know, the, like to parenting or what do they do differently from moms? And it is really interesting because some of the research suggests that, you know, dads generally encourage kids to take more risks than moms do. This is certainly true in my household <laughs> um, where I'm like, don't do that. Don't, that's dangerous. Stop. Um, and, and my husband's like, no, it's fine. They'll be fine. Um, and I guess this is like, it's not always true. Of course there are exceptions, but generally this is, this is often true that, that dads will be like a little less risk averse than moms and that this is really good for kids. Um, and they're often also like more, more playful. Um, and, and I think from what the research suggests, these are really important things that, that dads impart to kids that moms don't always do. And these are good, like good lessons and good values that we're, we're telling kids that sometimes it is good to take risks and, and stuff. So there's, they, they do provide like a, an important sort of balancing factor um, that's unique, you know, that's, it's not just that there's one more parent. It's like dads are sort of like uniquely um, providing certain things for their kids, which is really neat, but we need so much more research. Um, you're right. And, but I'm confident it's, it's getting a little better. I talked with them. Um, I talked with some, some uh, psychologists who also like psychotherapists who work with families recently. And they said recently, especially um, maybe in part because of the pandemic and how, you know, both parents were home, they're seeing dads become much more involved in, for instance, like, you know, family, family therapy sessions and, and just like being much more present and involved in wanting to, you know, learn how to parent and, and work with their kids. So that's certainly a good development too. It's it's funny going back a little bit to just what kids pick up without you even realizing what they pick up. And uh, my wife and I both worked from home for the majority of the pandemic. Um, she is a teacher. She did have to go back into the classroom for a couple months there. And I was the one at home. So I spent a lot of time with my daughter. Um, so I was with her basically every day for the first six months of her life nonstop, which is really a blessing because uh, I, I don't think I ever would have had that time with her otherwise. But we we joke that my wife gets hugs and kisses from my daughter 
but I don't. Like she when I pick her up, she wants to play. She wants to jump on me and climb on me and play. So it's kind of funny like I'm the I'm the playful parent and my wife is the emotional support parent and she's seven and a half months old and she's already kind of adapting to some of these sort of typical gender roles. And I don't think we've done anything to, you know, to get her there, but she's already kind of picked up on that. It's very interesting. That is really interesting. And I suspect that's pretty normal. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would say the same is probably quite true with, with my kids too. Yeah. I, I mean, my, my husband hugs them a lot, but he's definitely the one they go to when they want to play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. This book was written, usually when a book is published, it's submitted about a year before it comes out. So you had, you, you had most of this done, I'm sure, before the pandemic started, but you, you did, you know, have a little bit of time there to maybe make some edits. But I wonder, obviously, things that are not in the book right now that maybe you've seen pop up there. Have you noticed anything about development with children with parents who have been staying home? Have you seen anything popping up on that? Because I'd be really curious if you have new babies or babies born during the pandemic, if development is different for them because they were surrounded by parents way more than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I have not seen any research on this, but I suspect that there's there's some that's been conducted. You know, sometimes even if you like researchers who are conducting these studies during the pandemic can still be like another year before the studies get published and stuff. Um, I have not, I have not seen this. I mean, I've certainly heard in terms of like, um, well, I think it it depends. There's certainly variation in terms of like whether the parenting is more sort of equalized during the pandemic or not. I've heard both things, certainly in my family. um, You know, my husband usually works in New York city, which is, an hour and a half commute away and he was there four days a week. And so the kids never had dinner with him. They never, you know, had breakfast with him. And now for the past year at plus, they've, they've been able to interact with him every day when, well, especially when there was no school, but also like coming home from school, he would be here and coming home from camp, he's here. And, um, and, and so I think like certainly his, his relative, um, impact on the kids and like the, the way that he's affected them has been much greater than it would have been like the, the unique ways that he parents have had more of an effect because they're just around him more, but I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen research on this. I, I got to look out for it though. I'd be curious. Like I, I know, like you said, you know, the, the pandemic has been around for a year and a half and research takes more than a year usually for, for really big research studies. So I think we all want instant results to know how things are happening, but it does take time. Uh, so, but I would be really interested to see if, uh, if that um, if that shows anything, because we, we talk about some of the things my daughter has done early uh, or earlier than she's expected. And, and look, every kid grows at their own rate. So there are th- I mean, she was climbing up on the coffee table, not up, but she was like using it to stand at five months, um, which wow. you know, is kind yeah. of ahead of the game and, and other, you know, for certain things. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Just something that I'd, I'd be interested in to see how that develops. But that's, you know, I'm kind of going off topic and rambling a little bit now. <laughs> it's a really uh, interesting question. Yeah. You, 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 we talked about feelings before and something that I, I've heard you say is you want to be a mentor to your kids instead of being something like a limiter, you know, where you just say, no, you don't do that. It's more about talking about why you don't do that or what are the expectations? I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think a lot of parents, when their kids misbehave, the inclination is to think like, they're trying to defy me. They're trying to drive me nuts. Like they know exactly what they're doing and they're pushing my buttons. And um, and I think one thing 
to keep in mind is um, that kids often just don't have the skills that we think that they do. Like they, they don't have the ability to behave in the ways sometimes that we expect them to. And so in this way, like discipline, if you think about it this way, then discipline becomes less about like correcting misbehavior and punishing kids and more about teaching kids the skills that they lack and helping them um, you know, figure out in a way how to make better decisions. So it's like more guidance than correction. Um, and so like, yeah, when, when a kid does something that you don't like, then um, well, let's say like your kid throws a, throws a book across the room because they're mad about something. Um, this happens sometimes in our house. Um, and so like the idea would be, okay, first, if they're mad, you could validate, acknowledge their emotions. Like, you're really mad. Clearly you're so mad um, because you want, you want them to know that like, it's okay for them to be angry, although it's not necessarily okay for them to throw a book when they're angry, but it's okay for them to be angry. And then, and then you kind of try to figure out like, okay, why did my kid do this? Is, are they scared right now? Are they, um, you know, upset, upset about a particular thing? Are they really tired? Like, did they just get home from camp and they're wrecked? Are they hungry? So you try to figure out what's behind maybe the behavior and then think about like, what lesson do you want to teach? Um, what, and what might be the best way to, to teach this lesson? So um, sometimes it means you got to wait a little bit till your kid has calmed down and then revisit like, okay, so I know you were so mad and, and, you know, let's talk about why you were mad. And, but then like, it's not okay to, to throw a book because that could hurt somebody or it could, it could ruin the book. And that's one of your favorite books. And that, that would be really sad. So what could you do next time you're angry? Cause the, you know, it's okay to be angry. It's just like, not okay to throw the book. And then you kind of try to brainstorm with them what the solution could be next time. So yeah, it's, it's like you're working with them in a way um, instead of against them. As I think a lot of parents, when, when their kids misbehave, it's like a you know, battle of wills and you're fighting and you're trying to get control. And really what, what works better is to not control your kids, but to work with them to help them you know, learn and do better next time and understand why what they did was you know, maybe not the most constructive thing. I think about friends of mine that lived in very, you know, strict or limiting households. And I did. My parents were very strict and didn't let me do a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And a lot of times I felt like there was no reason for it. You know, why, why is my curfew 10 PM instead of 11 PM? Like explain to me that hour difference. Why is that? You know, and you never really get one. You just get, because I'm the mom. That's why that's how that. And I remember when I went to college, thankfully I had a pretty good set of moral values and I stayed mostly out of trouble. But when I went to college, I grew up north of Boston. I moved down to Philadelphia just because I wanted to be able to do whatever the hell I wanted to do. And, you know, I remember calling my mom uh, at like 11 o'clock at night from the center of Philadelphia. Like, I was like, I'm in the city. You know, like, you can't do anything about it, mom. You know, so it's like the idea of limiting things so much could have repercussions down the road too, because now you're, you're setting the kid up to maybe be angry about those limits and want to rebel, you know, instead of having the conversation explaining why and talking to them about these things. And then they have a better, uh, better baseline moving forward. Yeah. So this gets into what is like broadly called a parenting styles, which is like the emotional climate that parents create that, that shapes how they interact with kids and respond to kids. And, and, um, so the first kind that you described, like with, with your friend and the parents being super strict, that sounds a lot like what's called authoritarian parenting. Um, and this is like parents who believe in a really strict, uh, like family hierarchy. The parents are in charge. Um, they bark orders at their kids. They don't explain <laughs> like what their, why the rules exist. You know, they don't like negotiate with their kids. Um, they're not particularly warm and they're often quick to punish. And 
that parenting style, the kids, yeah, the kids don't do very well when they've, when they've done research, like tracking, you know, kids of authoritarian parents and, and how they do like 10 or 15 years later, those kids do, they, they're more often more aggressive. They don't do as well in school. And yeah, a lot of it could be like, they're, they're upset. They're responding to the controlling um, behavior of their parents. Like they, they just, they don't thrive. Um, but what, is much better the parent well so on the other end of the spectrum let me give the other one that's not great which is um permissive parenting sure which is like no rules like the kids yeah. rule the roost i um, want to be my best friend it, with my kids yeah exactly like there's no hierarchy that also is not that's not associated with really good outcomes but the middle ground um which is authoritative parenting that's what is associated with like really good outcomes in in like every domain like kids kids with these parents um they do better in school, they're kinder, they're more generous, they're less likely to lie to their parents. And this is again, like this sort of middle ground where you you definitely do have limits and boundaries. Um, but, uh, and so you, you are like demanding in that sense, but you're also warm and you're responsive. And yes, you engage with your kids when they ask you, why is my curfew at 10? You talk to them about it, you explain, you're willing sometimes to negotiate and hear their perspective and respond to their perspective. And so it's, it's like a, it's a, it is kind of like a middle ground, um, but those kids really fare better. And I think it's in some way because the kids feel respected, they feel heard, you know, and they develop better self-esteem because of that. So yeah, um, that that's what really like parents should be striving for is this kind of middle ground. I don't know if this would end up in your book, but it's just a question that popped into my head while we were talking about this. Did you do you notice in your research a difference um, between ages of parents and how they raise their kids? Like I know the age, the average age of a new parent has gotten higher. Uh, I just had my first daughter and she I was 39 when she was born. I turned 40 about two months after um, she was born. So I'm a little bit ahead of that or older than the average. But I wonder, like, do older parents have a different parenting style than younger parents? I don't know if you've seen any sort of correlations. You know, I recently saw, maybe it was even just like an abstract of a study. And I, I need to look it up again more to get more details, but it, it did suggest that older parents tend to be sort of better parents. Um, and I, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but I don't know exactly why, but I think that, I think the idea is they tend to, they tend to be more authoritative in some ways, but what I don't know is are the younger parents, you know, what, what's the difference? Are they more permissive? Are they stricter? I'm not sure like what they're doing. That's not great, but I did read that often older parents, um, they, they're just, they use more constructive parenting approaches. Maybe, um, I don't, you know, and I don't exactly know why, but we've lived longer. Maybe we've like kind of well, it is because we're a, tired. Um, we're tired and we don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, and we just want to like get through the day. <laughs> yeah. You know, that absolutely could be it too. Um, it's a really interesting question though. I mean, I certainly know that like generationally, um, like our parents, for instance, were much more likely to use authoritarian yeah. parenting. That was much more popular, like in the 60s, 70s. Um, and then I think it kind of started slowly switching over to more authoritative in like the, you know, later 80s and 90s. So yeah, um, I mean, like, um, watching Mad Men, for instance, like, and watching how those parents parented, like that was authoritarian parenting, they are like barking orders at their kids and ex have very high expectations and are very, very strict. Um, so yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, bullying is a big topic in your book too, because you, you we want to avoid raising bullies. I think so much of what we've talked about 
kind of leads to that because I think a bully is a product of their environment. You know, I don't I don't think any kid is born with the inclination to be a bully. It's stuff that they see, that they learn, that they pick up on, and that kind of translates uh, into maybe the aspect of bullying as they get older. So I guess how do we avoid that? I mean, some some familial situa- situations, it must be very difficult because there are parents that just are kind of absentee parents. There are parents that just, it's the way that the world is for them. It's It's hard to predict um, or hard to see like how each kid is going to come out. Yeah. The bullying research is really interesting. And also just observing other parents talking about bullying is very interesting because generally parents are very, very scared that their kid is going to be bullied and they are not particularly worried about their kids becoming bullies. Um, And I've seen this come out time and time again. And I think and there's this, A, there's this like assumption that like, well, my yeah, my kid could not possibly do that. And because of that, we don't really talk a lot about bullying. We don't necessarily have these conversations where we explain what it can look like. And we explain that, um, you know, impact is more important than intention. So some of the research suggests that kids who, who wind up bullying, um, a lot of them, surprisingly, don't really understand that what they're doing is hurtful. I mean, we, we, I feel like we all think of bullies as like these mean, horrible people. They know exactly what they're doing there. And there are those bullies, but there is a lot, like a large proportion of kids who bully, who really like, they think they're, they're engaging in harmless, um, teasing. Like they think it's fun. They think everybody's having fun. And this gets back to the issue of theory of mind. I was talking Mm -hmm. about earlier where kids who bully often have less developed theory of mind skills. They are less able to put themselves in other people's shoes and take other people's perspectives. Um, so, you know, these, again, these, these could be parents, uh, kids of parents who maybe don't talk a lot about feelings. Um, also there's like this idea too, that, um, that bullying is very black and white. Like a kid is either always a bully or never a bully when in fact it's much more of a continuum where kids might occasionally bully or they might be bullied one day and then bully the next day. Um, or they might, you know, not be the instigators, but they'll be sort of on the sidelines kind of, um, rooting with the bully. Like there's all these different ways that kids can be involved in bullying. And so, and I think, I think it's important for parents to realize this because, yeah, we kind of assume like there's only one kind of bully. It's the terrible, horrible kid. My kid is not that. Therefore, I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to talk about it. Um, instead, I think we should be talking about like the fact that that bullying can can be something that you only do some of the time. And but here's what it looks like. And here's what maybe you know. Um, here's something that could be hurtful. Um, and talking about like the fact that you may not always think that you're hurting somebody else's feelings, but sometimes you could be. And and how does that look? So like, yeah, getting into these sort of nitty gritty conversations with our kids about how they interact with other people is really important. Theory of mind, hearing you talk about that and reading about it, it it's something that I'm really glad that I've learned more about uh, through you, because I think that it's such an important thing. Like I, I bullying as, as a topic, I was the, uh, I guess I got the brunt of a couple of the big bullies in my elementary school as I was growing up. But now that I'm an adult and I look back on it, my reaction to it was less standing up for myself or less talking about my feelings. My reaction to it was then becoming a bully to other kids that maybe I deemed as, you know, less than me, you know, and, and I I don't know if what I was doing to them was any better or worse than what the bullies were doing to me, but that was, that was kind of my reaction. Uh, And I didn't, 
realize it until just a few years ago when bullying became a much bigger topic that people were talking about. I was like, man, I, w- I was a bully, you know, to some people. And, and I felt I have a sense of guilt over that. I mean, we're talking about 30 years ago, but I still have a sense of guilt about that. So it, it, it is so important to talk to your kids about those feelings and how they make you feel. Because if I maybe if I had had those conversations with my parents or other adults, my reaction wouldn't have been to then take my anger and my aggression out onto other people. Yeah, I, I think to the degree that we can talk to kids about anger and, you know, and help them figure out what are some things you can do in your anger that are okay and, and won't hurt other people. I think, yes, those, those kinds of conversations can really help because in situations where, yeah, you, you're being bullied and you kind of don't know what to do with those feelings and you feel like you can't talk to your parents about it or your parents aren't willing to talk about it, then you won't necessarily deal with it in the most constructive way, right? You will maybe then you know, push that anger onto other kids and, and bully. And so, yeah, this again, just gets down to like, uh, talking about feelings and how to manage them. And, uh, and, you know, and, and it, and kids can really like surprise you sometimes. My daughter, I have a seven-year-old, she has really big feelings, like more than I have a 10 year old as well, but she's just like, she will just erupt at like the littlest thing. Um, and, you know, scream at the top of her lungs outside. And, recently though, like we've tried and tried to like talk to her about, okay, well, what can you do when you feel that angry? And yes, we like let her scream as long as she's outside. We give her like a safe space to do it. But recently she has like, when she's really mad, she'll just say, can everyone be quiet for a minute? And she'll sit down and start meditating. Hmm. And like, she'll sit there literally like cross-legged and just close her eyes and then do this for two minutes and then stop. I think she picked it up at school. I do not, I cannot take credit for this, (laughs) but like, but at the same time, I'm like, that's, I mean, that's really, that's really cool. Yeah. She doesn't do it all the time. She still screams like a banshee sometimes instead of doing that. But, uh, but I, I, but I also know she went to a school that like really talked about feelings and talked about like what to do about feelings and stuff. And so you could see sometimes these like surprising, amazing outcomes with your kids when you've laid this groundwork. It's, it's really cool. Uh, that is, that's so important. I mean, that's something that I've tried to work into, but not necessarily meditating, but just taking that minute, like taking that breath and removing yourself from a situation for a minute just to calm down, clear your head, and then you can move forward. People in our generation, we don't, we didn't do that. We did, we just, we reacted and we went and we just kept moving. And even to this day, I work with people that is about the same age as you and I, and their reactions are always just screaming and yelling and you know, throwing it. I'm like, you guys, you're in your forties. Like, let's tone it down a little bit. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, I still... I still will yell at my kids. Oh, we all have you know, our moments. I, no one's perfect. Right. Yeah. But you know, but then like, also I try to later use those moments in ways that are constructive. Like I will, I will almost always like say, I'm really sorry. I just got so mad. I'm really tired. Like, what do you think next time I should, I should do to make myself feel better. So I don't scream at you. And like, they'll give me suggestions and they'll sort of feel like they're helping me. And that's kind of fun. Cause it's yet another conversation about managing anger. And sometimes too, my kids will like, see when I'm about to explode and they'll be like, mom, mom, you need to take some deep breaths. <laughs> and it's like, it's really great because yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, we think of the times that we like screw up as parents and, oh, like it's going to ruin our kids. We've really messed them up. But sometimes I feel like those screw ups are really constructive too, because our, then our kids know, like everybody makes mistakes. Mistakes are okay. They're part of being human. And you know, what's important is that you try to learn from them. And, and if you hurt someone, then you apologize. Like, but you know, even in the mistakes we make, we can, we can, um, teach our kids things. 
yeah, like I look forward to you know doing anything with your kids is important because it does you know the interaction is so important for them. But I look forward to uh, playing video games with my daughter when she gets older, you know, like a Nintendo Switch or whatever. But I also don't look forward to it because I'm wickedly competitive. So I'm either going to try to destroy her in every game that I possibly can, or she's going to beat me and I'm going to throw the controller across the room and get so pissed about it. <laughs> so like I, I'm also very nervous about how my reaction is going to be. Right. That'll be yes. My my husband's also very competitive. And it is, it is really interesting seeing him like play board games with the kids and stuff. And, and, and we have a Nintendo switch and yeah, he definitely does not, does not, uh, let the kids win very frequently. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Well, he does. <laughs> uh, Melinda, I know my time with you is running short. Is there anything in the book that that I did not bring up that but you really want to mention and that you really think is super important? Um, you know, one thing that I think was really surprising when I dug into the research on self-esteem. Yeah. Um, I read an article that you wrote for the Atlantic. I think it was about yes. self-esteem. I, I thought about bringing it up, but I was like, oh man, this is like a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I won't get into all the nuances of it, but, and actually this part, this, what I was about to say is actually not in that Atlantic piece. It's a different aspect oh, that I, exclusive. Uh, that's book. Um, ooh, um, was, you know, there is a lot of pressure on, parents right now to, you know, ensure that their kids do well in school. You know, it's very hard to get into colleges. It's, you know, there's everything's so competitive now, but what the research suggests is that when we really put pressure on our kids to do well in school, to, um, to make the soccer team, you know, to get the lead in the play, when we're really putting pressure on them, they interpret that as that our love for them is contingent on what they do. And this is really not good for their self-esteem. Even if, you know, we don't say that, it's not like we say like, I won't love you if you don't <laughs> get on the soccer team, but they will take these, this pressure that we put on them. And I think it's very well-meaning pressure. We just want our kids to do well, but it's, uh, they take that as like, if I don't do this, my mom won't love me or my dad won't love me. And then when they do fail or they, you know, they don't do well on a math test, then they really take a hit to their self-esteem and they start to think, you know, I'm a failure and nobody should love me. And so, you know, this is something that I think is so prevalent in our culture right now that, you know, we put a lot of pressure on our kids to do well and it's very well-meaning, but I think we just have to be careful that we don't overdo it. And that we always are sending this message to our kids that we love them no matter what this, you know, unconditional love is really, I think that the most important thing that we can do to help our kids develop healthy self-esteem. Oh my gosh. I was not allowed to get anything lower than a B for a grade. The amount of sleepless nights I had just oh, stressing yeah. out about how I was going to do on a test because I didn't want to get in trouble with my parents and all that. Like, and I, and I get it. Like I, my parents really wanted me to do well in school. That was their intention. Their intention was not to add that stress to me, but it did. It really did. Yeah. 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 It's a lot for kids. Yeah. Well, Melinda, this book and this work that you've done is fascinating. Um, like I said, I haven't finished the entire book because there's just so much in here and it's so great. And I want to make sure that I digest it all, but how to raise kids who aren't hassle assholes, science-based strategies for better parenting from tots to teens. Really, really great stuff. I'm so glad that you put this together. Thank you so much. It was really lovely to chat with you about all of this. So thanks for having me. Before I let you go, anywhere that people can go to follow you or find out more information about this? My website is melindawennermoyer.com. And I have a free parenting newsletter actually that um, called Is My Kid the Asshole? <laughs> kind of based on the <laughs> Reddit. <laughs> um, and every week I, I tackle um, 
a challenging kid behavior and I explain why, you know, why do kids do this thing and how can parents sort of help them not do it as much. <laughs> so that's been really fun. So you can also sign up for my newsletter through my website. Well, thank you so much for your time, Melinda. I really appreciate it and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you to Melinda Wenner-Moyer for her time today. I'll have to get her back on the podcast again sometime in the future. She's great. And like I said earlier, she knows her shit, so she's perfect to have on here. Her book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, is available now, and I think it's fantastic, especially for parents looking for a little bit of guidance in their journey uh, with their kids. And thank you also to all of you for listening this week and every week. I really do appreciate you. Please don't forget to subscribe, uh, rate, and review the show. I'd love that, too. Until next time, be well.